Hello and welcome to this episode of Better Off Red. Now, are you ready? It's episode 93, so we've made 93 episodes of Better Off Red. It's um, the 7th episode in the Elements series, so we've made 7 this year, and this is the first in our plot season. As you can see, I've made it way too complicated, but also, um, yeah, I quite enjoyed it because I used to be a cataloging librarian. Great job. Um, anyway, so in this episode, we wave goodbye to place, and this is the first in um, the three months that we talk about plot. So for the next three months, every couple of weeks, um, there will be an episode which um, looks at plot. I realize now that I used the word plot because I liked the way it sounded with place. Um, I am that shallow. But um, when I talk about plot, what I mean is how a story works. So I'm talking about, um, say, craft elements like narrative and structure, but also something more basic than that as well. Ideas like why is some of the world in the story and why is some of the world not in the story? Why does the story start now? Um, what makes a story finished? Um, what does the story need to do to make us satisfied? And um, I just realized I just used the word story there, but I'm also interested in um, other kind of containers for um, writing and expression. So yeah, um, we're going to be looking at plot. I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's going to be fun. And I'm very happy for this first episode. Um, I talked to Ingrid Horrocks um, we talk about water and um, I'm really grateful to Ingrid for um, taking the time to talk to me. Um, it was a very busy week for her I imagine um, with the launch of her new and amazing book Where We Swim which was published by VUP and soon to be published in Australia. It's it's yeah it's a very awesome book. It's a um, book length um, work of non-fiction. It's great. So um, I will let Ingrid introduce herself um, when I stop talking and also talk about her work. Um, it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. So um, just one thing, towards the end of the conversation, we talk about a paper that um, Ingrid and Dr. Laura Jean McKay, so Dr. Ingrid Horrocks and Dr. Laura Jean McKay are teaching at Massey, which is called Ecofictions and Nonfictions. So I have put a link to this paper um, in the website which is better-read.com um, today is the 13th of April um, so if you have a look on that link it will tell you the dates for that paper and some information about it um, it looks amazing it looks so good um, yeah I think that's everything I hope you enjoy um, listening to this conversation and thank you very much for listening It's really nice to have you here. Um, now we are going to sit down and have a chat about water, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, I wonder if we could start with you introducing yourself, however you would like to introduce yourself. Yeah, sure. Um, ko Ingrid Toko Ingoa, um, and I'm a writer from Ponaki, Wellington. Um, and I guess I'm here partly to talk about my new book, Where We Swim, which is partly about water. Um, and this is my fifth book, um, but all the books are really different, mm -hmm. so it feels quite strange to say that. So there's two poetry books, there's a book about the history of women wanderers, and then there's another narrative non-fiction book, and this, uh, this, is, this one is narrative non-fiction as well. Um, yeah, I live here in Wellington, I spend a lot of my 20s elsewhere in the world, in England and um, the US and Berlin, and then I came home. 
Nice. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And um, thanks heaps for situating where you were because I think this is a book where which travels in interesting ways. And I think possibly that's how I first came to your writing was um, through your book about the travels of your um, relative. Yeah, yeah so travelling yeah. with Augusta. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I often think of you, but yeah, I'm sure we'll talk about that. So can you talk a little bit, we had a bit of a back and forth about what would be a good sort of object or sort of element to, talk, to sort of centre the conversation on. Can you talk a little bit about what we ended up choosing or what you ended up choosing? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, the object I ended up choosing was water, mm-hmm. which of course isn't really an object. Um, and I was thinking this morning, if I'd been organised, I might have like gone for a swim in the very chilly water on the south coast and brought a glass full of water for us to look at. Um, but I do, I do have some water here. Um, so yeah, kind of water in all its manifestations. And I was thinking, um, I'm wondering... Like, you've written a whole book kind of about this, but I'm wondering about what is the draw of water? You know, like, um, I wonder if... Yeah, like, what what makes it a good sort of organising thing to talk about as far as your yeah, work goes? Yeah, that's really, really interesting because I think part of what draws me to it as an organising thing is that it is kind of everything. So, so you can fit... It's a container for, for so many different things. So I guess specifically, I was really interested in the way in which it so directly engages with us and our bodies, so that we consume it, we are it, we immerse in it. Um, but also it's just this big global thing which is linked to politics and every every country, every landmass is linked to water. And when we talk about climate change and we talk about pollution, we, we're talking about water. Mm, mm. So um, it sort of allowed it allowed me to do a lot of different things with it. When we talk about that's the idea of bodies in water. Um, this book is called Where We Swim, and I wonder what is it about swimming? Do you want to talk about any kind of personal history with swimming, or what? What? Why? What is it about swimming? Yeah, okay. Um, What's funny about this book is I keep being described as a swimmer. And really, yeah, no, I'm really not a swimmer. I have a friend who just did a 2K swim. um, And yeah, I couldn't couldn't do that. There's absolutely no way. Uh, But um, I grew up on a farm in the Wairarapa. And part of what we did is we swam in the river. Or we just kind of hung out around the river. Mm. Um, And now... One of the great joys of returning to New Zealand um, when I did was kind of re-engaging with the sea. And um, with the sea, I actually just like that it's different every day. I like that it feels different, it looks different, that kind of colour colour shift that it does. And I like that swimming is separate from so much of our kind of daily lives and our kind of sitting in front of a computer. Yeah, I like that that immersing in something that kind of takes you somewhere else. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I always think of it as almost like a different world on our world. Like it just, yeah, like everything is different. The physics is different. Everything is different in it. Um, we are here in part to talk about, um, there's all sorts of words for this. I always think of it as narrative structure, but I also think of it like sort of the container that the work is in, you know, like... Um, all the world is here and part of it is in this book. You know, there's sort of an end and a beginning to it. And I wonder, 
Can you remember the writing of the book and which came first? Was it, did you think to yourself, I'm going to write a book about swimming or did you start to notice that some of the chapters were kind of coalescing around this idea? Yeah, that, <laughs> that's a complicated answer. So I started off thinking I was going to write a bit about swimming, mm -hmm. like maybe 3,000 words about swimming. And I did this very deliberate journey, which is sort of the start of the book, which was swimming from... Wellington to Auckland and trying to kind of swim in a many, as many different ways as I could um, and think about water and pollution and our waterways. Um, but I felt I was kind of dissatisfied with the form. It felt too deliberate. It felt um, too solitary. And I had really noticed that I seemed to only be able to write when I was away from my family, um, which meant that I could only do a particular kind of writing about the world. Um, so basically I threw that away, I abandoned it, um, and then I was writing pieces, I wrote some pieces about travel, um, and I did gradually notice that some of them were about water, but again, when I took um, when I took the table of contents for this book to Victoria University Press, it actually only had about a third of essays around water, and they said to me, oh, this stuff about water, <laughs> is there like more, is there maybe even a book in this? And I, I thought immediately, it seemed very clear that there was, there was a book in it. Um, and then it really helped me to shape things. Um, I think when we talked the other day, um, and like, please forgive me if I misunderstood this, but I looked at my notes and what I said was one of the things you liked about this as an ordering device perhaps, is that it contains the private and global dispersal, the complexities of a single body embedded in a family, embedded in a world, those kind of ideas. Um, so I guess my question around this is, um, yeah, just this idea of how it links us to the world. You know, I think that the book feels yeah could you talk a little bit about that like we're sort of in we're in the end of the world and I really love that idea sometimes I think of water as a barrier to travel but also it's a it's a it's a road to travel as well yeah 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 well that's a lot I think did I say that um um, um so probably actually, not knowing my note when you say that I think about a very particular moment that I had where I had um I decided at one point, there's one chapter in the book where I decided it was winter time and I thought I'd just try for a month see what happens if I wrote about water every day. Mm -hmm. And I got lucky in the Matariki, the whale swam into the harbour and then I had this lovely narrative structure. Um, but um, I just had this moment of being on, on the south coast looking at the rocks and then sort of seeing all the planes coming and going and the New Zealand Post truck coming and going and thinking, yeah, not about isolation, but about the way in which water was all about all these kind of connecting webs and that there were whales swimming between places and letters flying between places and people flying between places across the water. So sort of seeing it, yeah, not just as, as cutting us off, but as the kind of metaphorical or somehow the emotional way in which we might be connected to other places and other, other people. Um, and I guess the book is partly about that thing that there are people all over the place living these very different lives um, and the book sort of dips down in different places in Colombia and England and the US and the sense that we're all living these very different lives but there is there are these, these connections 
between individual lives and other lives. Can I talk a little bit about this idea around, especially when it comes to non-fiction, you know, like when I write a story, I can decide that, oh, it'd be nice if a character turned up now and it'd be nice if it was this character that turned up now and I can control the narrative structure that way. And I think that we have talked in the past about organising and excising and can you talk a little bit about, I think this is just a general question around narrative structure and non-fiction. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really interesting. Um, I, yeah, I feel like that first thing is that is selection of the moment, the one that seems to have narrative contained in it. Um, and I think probably in this book, each chapter generally covers quite a distinct period, so maybe like three days. Um, sometimes it's one day. Um, so finding the moment that seems to have a narrative arc in it. Um, and I think that I often I don't really know what that is, except that I have this intuitive sense mm, mm. that there are some things coalescing mm. in this particular moment and that it seems to have a particular scene in which some important things came together. And then... It, and then I actually just free write all that stuff. And then I've got to get rid of, like often there will have been the person who came. So, so in Days Bay, mm, which yeah. um, maybe we'll talk, talk about a bit later, but there's, um, I, I look back at my earlier drafts um, just to see how different they were. And one of the big differences is that um, a really close friend of mine came to visit during the three days that that essay covers. Um, and we hung out with her on the beach and she had this big passage in the early in the early draft, and then I thought, ah, oh, no, she doesn't, she, she, she doesn't belong in this piece of writing. She might have been there in those days. So actually just kind of removing, mm. removing people. And can we talk a little bit, in here there's also um, a set of water logs. I think you talked about that at the beginning, this idea of sort of each day. And this gives the impression of writing very close to the events as they're unfolding, perhaps not having moments to reflect and stuff like that. What is, I always think, is there crafting of those after the event? That's a very silly question of mine because yes. I'm expecting there are. Oh, good, I feel yes. better now. <laughs> um, and actually those are probably quite good ones to talk about because they're the ones that most look uncrafted. Yeah. Some of the others, it's very clear that they have a narrative arc. Um, but... Those, I, I was, so firstly, of course, I was writing close to the mm, event. Mm. Um, so everything that's in there is sort of was recorded in the moment. Um, but I probably wrote about five times as much as is in there. Um, and I guess there are maybe five different narrative threads I could have followed. And then there are two. So in the first water log, there's, there's the arrival of the whale, mm, Matariki. Mm. And so there's kind of a story of, of Wellington's kind of falling in love with that whale and then the whale leaving us. <laughs> um, um, but at the same time, there were the Thai boys who got stuck in the cave mm -hmm. at the same time. And so I was just kind of recording everything. And I think probably about halfway through the month, I realised that that was a story about water mm. as well mm. and people, things in the wrong element. Mm. So then um, I think probably through cutting as well, I'm often juxtaposing and putting things against each other. Um, because in that form you kind of can't go back and say, oh, this meant that, 
So I think you're much more working with juxtaposition and letting things sit alongside each other and kind of sound out for the reader. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, like, I, get, I read the book again last night and I was thinking about that last... What do you call the last piece? Is I think it I called, called it a coda. It was yeah. many different things. Yeah. Yes, yeah. there's a coda. And I think there's something incredibly... Um, you said that beautiful thing that Harry Ricketts said in his review about, you know, if you want to go for a swim, go for a swim. And, like, there's something incredible with putting that at the end because it kind of puts a lens on the rest of the, the work. Was that a very late addition or...? Yeah, like absolutely, because the coda is COVID. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Essentially, I can't remember exactly what the date is, but I have the. Uh, there's a date in the yeah. um, previous Takoda piece, um, which I thought was the last piece, and it's sort of February 2020. Um, I went for a night swim, and I I was sitting in the botanist, and I had written it, and I thought, oh yes, that's it, <laughs> that's the book. And then about a week later, we're in lockdown, mm. and um, and it turns out the world is different from what what I'd imagined. So. Um, yeah, so the coda was, I actually couldn't write, I kind of, I actually think I wrote it from, based on a journal that I'd written during lockdown, so I wrote up that very short coda, probably after I'd given the manuscript to VUP, um, but I did write through the whole text again mm. during lockdown, mm, mm, so mm. I wrote through the, the whole thing again in light of COVID and the shift and, and particularly the new isolation of New Zealand and... and yeah, away from the rest of the world and our families. and mm. yeah. it, um, This idea of endings is really interesting to me in non-fiction as well. Like, I, I think the idea that these stories end but people, do you know what I mean, like conversations continue, you know, these sorts of things. How, is it as simple as the essay feels like it's come to a landing point or how do you decide where to end a piece of non-fiction? <laughs> yeah, right. It's um, a million dollar question. <laughs> um, uh, it's, I think it's it's really interesting that if you keep if you're someone like me who's quite slow, so I tend to I will have done a draft, but I often won't be calling it finished until a year later. Mm, mm, so um, I ended up having to be quite strict with myself on on this one in terms of like that was about the shape and the feel of those three days. And I might understand it differently now, um, but um, but kind of the knowledge that um, was the impulse in that story that I've written kind of needed to be true to the moment. And I think the more I look back at them, the more I realise how shaped they are and how specifically embedded in time. Mm. So it's not the truth about these people um, or about me. <laughs> it's the truth about how it felt um, in that moment, in that location, when we had this bit of information. Um, so I was, I feel like that thing that actually, yeah, containing it. Um, that said, sometimes I did add in later information. Mm, mm. Um, so I think, yeah, for instance, there's a chapter there, which was one of the hardest to write about my mother-in-law being very sick, um, and she died just when the book was going to print, um, which is not in, I, I, that's in the acknowledgements, but, but it's not in the book, but the kinds of things I, I did add, it's about one particular summer, and I did add another allusion to the next summer there because it's part of about 
partly about the fact that there was a summer and we wondered if it was the last time we would get to go to the beach together. Um, and it felt strange not to include the fact that there was another summer. And we did go to the beach once again. So that was, it felt like, a crucial part of the emotional narrative. Um, yeah, so sort of deciding what what is crucial to what was the truth of that piece of writing at the time. You've kind of blown my mind a little bit because I've always this idea of the essay reflecting the moment of its, you know, like I've always realised that people will go back to nonfiction and, you know, like um, craft it later. But this idea of maintaining. I, l I think what you said was maintaining something of the truth of that moment. That must be an incredibly exciting thing to do. Like, that's quite an amazing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think, yeah. It's, it's really interesting also what that moment is. So sometimes the truth is the moment of the action. Yeah. And sometimes the, the main moment is the moment when you return to thinking about it. Yeah. So yeah. if you're thinking about childhood or something. But yeah, I think I think it is because it does mean that they feel more like stories that are separate from you. Um, and it's it's interesting. I was talking to um, Fergus when mm. he Fergus Barrowman at Victoria University Press, who when he he'd read it he read it a lot of times. Um, and at one point he said something about how to make this book. I kind of had to hold all of my life during the period of writing the book. And I feel as though that's sort of true. Each There's a lot of bits of my life that are in there and I kind of had to hold them all and work out how they could sit and kind of speak in relation to each other. Um, but each of them had to keep its own distinct voice. Mm, yeah, it's, it's an amazing book. It's an astounding book. We are talking... I This is a book of chapters, not a collection of essays. They are also sort of in these interesting containers... Um, which have titles themselves. Can you talk of what what's the structure of the book? Like, why is it chapters and not collected essays? And what is it about these sort of organising little? Um, I want to call them pods, but one of them's called pod. Um, what is it about this? Yeah, what's the structure of the book? Um, well, the table of contents is now really simple. Um, it's just places. Mm. Um, but in my writing of it, each of them did have its own title um, as well. Like Days Bay was called Feeling New Life, which is a bit naff. But, um, I like um, it. <laughs> so actually, each of them in my, in my version had the place, and then it had a kind of metaphorical title. Um, and it also, mostly, they all had an animal associated with mm -hmm, them. Mm -hmm. So quite early on, I had this idea that each of them would have a non-human animal Excellent. associated with them. Um, and... So why are they not essays? Um, they, they are partly essays, um, but I, I, wanted, I wanted the idea that these places, um, so each chapter is a place and that these places sit in relation to each other and that they sound off each other. And there is a sort of narrative arc that goes through the book as well. Um, so I had... I did a lot of rearranging. Um, I think my background as a poet meant that I naturally took a lot of pieces and moved them around. Um, but a really pivotal moment there um, in terms of arranging things was when Tina Makariti read it. And she said, oh, we ca you, can't leave, you can't leave New Zealand and be off having these adventures until we know who you are. And it, I was quite resistant to it um, because 
I think I thought that the Wellington ones were less interesting. Uh, I, I don't think that now. Yeah. Um, but I but I had the idea that going to Days Bay and hanging out with my mum and dad maybe not as interesting as the Amazon. Um, <laughs> but basically, Tina, it was you know basically it needed more of a fucker papa, um, and I needed to speak of where I wa- who I was and where I came from and what my waters were before I could go out and connect those waters to other other waters. And then so now I think it actually has a really good structure. So I think it's got. So it has got my mum and dad. <laughs> um, sort of, so we start out and we kind of get grounded or immersed in Wellington. Then it goes out into other places. So we go to the Amazon in Colombia where my little brother lives. My little brother, who's nearly 40. Um, <laughs> and we go to Perth where my older brother lives. And we go to the Amazon with my younger brother. And we go to Sussex where I, where I studied and mm. wrote about British literature. And then we come home again to my new family, which is my children and my partner. Yeah, and I think it, it is really, I did, you know, the genius of Tina is such a, it's such, I think there is something very interesting about the, yeah, I think it's exactly like what you and her talked about, you know, like it, we get to know you and, not you, but the eye of the, the book, we get to know these people in this place and then, yeah, like, because we go straight from there to Medellin, like, yeah, which I think is a really interesting thing because there's still the pull of family. Like, if there was a PPH, you would probably then say my brother is here. And, yeah, I think that it works so very, very well. Could we talk a little bit about Days Bay um, and the structure there? I'm thinking in particular there's a very interesting thing um, in there in that, someone in the book is waiting on some results and that sort of that injury or illness kind of helps to sort of is it a timekeeping thing for it or I don't know like how did you structure how did like what is the structure of that yeah yeah um um timekeeping I think I didn't think about it that way um but certainly that's the bracket so Mm -hmm. there's the does my my father had got a positive t- test on deep vein thrombosis, um, and we were all very anxious. Mm. But he couldn't get results for three days. So um, so that is the that's the the structure I guess of, of the piece. And I looked when I looked at my drafts, that is the complete structure and the original draft as mm. well. So I think what I must have been seeing is that there was. Basically, there was a tension, mm. and the tension mm. was very specific and had scenes that I could work with, um, but it was also a tension about um, understanding that our parents are mortal, mm-hmm. so it was small and big, um, and it was a tension that had, had a shape because there was complete release at the end because actually it was a false positive and he was absolutely fine. Um, and it's been funny that peace has gone out in the world on its own. And I've had some people writing to me and saying, oh, I hope your parents are okay. And actually my parents are completely fine. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was that it, um, yeah, that narrative tension created something I could then structure. And then the swims helped mm. me structure it. So mm. it has, I can't remember, it's maybe got three swims mm, mm. in it, that one. So there's, there's a sense that the swims are what we're doing 
when we're just being alive and when we're waiting and where we've been with our family. So they kind of help time pass. Mm. That idea of tension, I mean, uh, real life is, is, is often um, fraught. Um, but I'm just wondering with nonfiction, like when I'm writing fiction, I'm thinking about things like that, like tension, release, um, you know, like um, climax moments, three-act structure, all that kind of thing. You've spent a bit of time writing fiction over the last few years. And I wonder if writing fiction has affected how you write nonfiction, do you think? Yes, I th- absolutely. And I think it was really helpful. So I've got this whole clutch of short stories, which They're are just sitting, <laughs> sitting. Yeah, I haven't published them, but I'm going to go back to them. Um, but I, And I was enjoying writing them, but then this book suddenly came at me and demanded to be written. Um, but I think, yeah, the main thing I, I learned from trying to write fiction was this idea that you need a mechanism essentially for keeping the reader reading. Mm-hmm. So I think I'd, um, I'd been coming at my non-fiction essays a little bit more like a poet. So I think they'd had a m- just more of a meandering lyric structure. And politically, I'm really interested in stories that don't have a good structure. I'm really interested in the fact that most things don't actually have a kind of great realisation or an epiphany and how we write that and that a lot of life is boring and how we write that. Um, But I think from writing fiction, I also got more of a sense that you need that, I guess that that idea that in those first three paragraphs, you need everything set up and there kind of does need to be sort of a a problem or something that makes you think, oh, how's that going to work out? Mm. Is is that going to be, yeah, what's going to happen there? So in the Metagen one with my younger brother, we we arrive and his, just his life is so different from ours. So here we are with our young kids, jet lagged, um, kind of just want to go for a swim in the pool and he's got this whole city and this world and this bar and this things to show us and um, yeah, I mean everyone knows about family tension. <laughs> um, so I was then I thought, oh actually I can do more narrative work with it. Mm-hmm. Can you One of the things that, you know, only hit me on this reading is that one of the ways that I've read you is is writing about women that travel, women that wander. And I was reading, when I was reading the Medellin ones again today, I was thinking, oh, this is a travel story, but it's not in a lot of the ways that, like, the woman that you've introduced me to whose work I absolutely love now, it's it's sort of a subverted kind of way of moving around the world. Yeah, 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 and that's actually was, that's one of the kind of big projects of the book for me is that um, I, I said earlier that I got dissatisfied with the idea of the solitary person mm, out there driving mm, a car mm, mm. in control of their movements. Yeah. Um, and... It just felt like there was this there's this whole thing about how we move as part of a family unit and it's messy and it's complicated and it's sort of wonderful and um, I just didn't feel as though I'd seen that that written very much and I think it changes your travel experience and it also tra- changes the stories and the narrative structure and particularly that sense that um, if you're a traveller with your family then um, you're often not really in control of what's going on and your kids get tired even though you plan to do this or that. And um, yeah, I just, I, it, that, that's sort of, I guess that's part of the feminist gesture of the book. Um, but it's also just part of these 
stories that seemed to me to be part of our lives that I wasn't getting to read. Mm. So, because I, yeah. I really love that idea of the story. You know, like if um, you know, when I think about those writers that you've written about and those people that you've written about, you know during the time that they were out in the world there was this very real idea of conquering landscapes and you know like getting to the highest hills and the you know whereas I think there's something that feels um, almost more interesting narratively in the vomit in the swimming pool and the you know the scary slide and the uh, we're going to have to sit down and have something to drink now, or else, you know, we're, you know, there's going to be a fight. Um, I'm not saying you; I'm saying me. Um, but like, yeah, I think there there is something different about that narrative, isn't it? It isn't. It's almost. I, mean, I was thinking a lot about Ursula Le Guin talking about how we always talk about conflict as a machine for narrative, but there was something very different in here, which almost felt collaborative. Or do you know what I mean? Like, it's yeah. a it's a surrender of some of our wants which I think changes the structure of the story in a lot of ways. That's really, that's really interesting. I haven't thought about it like, like that at, at all, but, but it makes sense yeah. um, that the, yeah, and you can't get as clear a narrative structure, mm, um, mm. but also, yeah, in relation to the world that the um, narrating subject is moving through. It's a completely different relation. Um, and... And one of the things I, I was thinking quite a lot about was with the encounter with um, with other non-human animals and how to write um, encounters with other bits of the world where it wasn't all about the protagonist narrative, that there were these other equal narratives that would come into contact and then they'd sort of move apart again. And then, yeah, so that then, I don't know, that just seemed like it, these slightly disruptions in narrative as opposed to one arc moving on through and conquering all mm. which I think also sort of seems like this is an exceptionally good book about um like it's almost scary to say it but it's a very good book about climate and about climate change and about you know like I really enjoyed there's a scene in Days Bay I think where I think the narrator talks about their parents' um, bumper stickers and, you know, like, this idea that this conversation about environment and our place in environment has been going on for a really long time and is becoming so much more urgent. And, yeah, I don't know what I've got to say about that, except, I mean, I really want to ask you how we write about climate change without, yeah, I don't know, like, yeah. Were those things that you thought about? Like, I was just thinking there's such an easy story, which is we're kind of fucked and, you know, but that's not, you know, that's not the... There's a great bit in here where people are talking about whether they have children or not and stuff like that. And, yeah, I just wonder, how did you approach the story of climate change? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, one thing that strikes me is that I, I published... I co-edited a book on place, Extraordinary mm, mm, Anywhere, mm, in 2014... Mm. Um, and we don't mention climate change once. None of us, none of our contributors. It's completely bizarre to me now. Um, and I think even over the period of writing this book, I, I went back to some of my earlier drafts and realised that climate change had to be more part of the thinking at every stage. Um, so I, um, 
I guess for me, I, what I see is the big shift in writing is away from this idea of cli-fi, cli climate mm, change mm, fiction, mm. which is in the future when it's all fucked, because um, that's all we seem to be able to imagine, <laughs> but kind of pulling it back and um, sort of, um, well, climate change is here now, so trying to write it into the flux of everything um, and trying not to just write despair and dread. So I guess I've kind of shifted quite a lot in terms of just trying to think about how we imagine the world differently so that we imagine ways in which we could engage to get out of this mess. So if we can think about uh, that, that we actually cohabit this planet with other <coughs> animals um, and other people, mm -hmm. but trying to create narratives that, that don't believe that we are mountain conquerors, but I believe that we live in a planet that has mountains and humans as well. So uh, I think that's, I was quite conscious in terms of the narratives of trying to, just those little tilts and vision, it was for myself as well, not really just for the reader, actually just for myself thinking, oh, how do I write this so that I'm not always the centre and humans aren't always the centre. Um, and then there are some explicit discussions of climate change, which I think may be some of the most written and rewritten passages in the book, because I found it really hard not to be preachy or despairing or, uh, yeah. So that those, they're quite embedded, those mm. scenes, in family conversation. And there's even this moment where I'm kind of sinking into despair, and then my partner and one of my daughters basically say, you know, could just, you know, come and get, come on, we're walking. We're mm. walking now here are the hills and here is the sea. Mm. And mm. this is also... There is also the shape of a human life, and I got really interested in putting the shape of a human life and the shape of a planet's life alongside each other. Mm, yeah, it's really um, those those conversations are of interest to me as well because again, as a as a fiction writer, I can make anyone say anything, and I'm wondering. Um, the, the the degree to which information comes through conversation, eh? Like it really it makes the book feel peopled in a really great way. I think. Um, do you write a lot of um, dialogue in your fiction? Did you find? Yeah. Do you think that writing nonfiction's given you a really good ear for writing fiction dialogue? Or uh, I, I don't. don't know. I don't think so. I hope so. <laughs> but I um, I actually find making up dialogue really really hard. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah, and I can't quite, I don't think I've quite worked out yet how to make people sound realistic in fiction and in, in dialogue. Um, but I think possibly it's because in non-fiction dialogue, it's often not actually dialogue. It's often like one person saying a, a pithy line mm -hmm. um, and then everyone moves on. Um, or there's a little exchange, like there's, um, there's one of my daughters asking about... Uh, with, with a, how high the sea will be mm, in 50 mm, years. Yeah. And I don't know if I, I think I just say in response in that piece, I think I say, I don't know, love. Yeah. And then there's a description of the landscape and what it might look like underwater. Um, there's also just the yeah, little bits. I'm trying to think, there's a scene where with my older brother in Perth where we're basically watching the news and I remember it as, as dialogue, but I think there's maybe just, there's just maybe tiny... Yeah, there's just a few words there. So actually to have people talking in a um, sustained way, as you need in fiction, 
I find quite a challenge mm. as a non-fiction writer. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I was thinking, now that I think back, like there's one particular conversation about eating and what we eat and stuff. And like when I think back to it, I'm imagining it as, you know, she said, she said, she said, she said. But actually I think that you're right. There is more reflection in it, which I think is really interesting. Can we, uh, th- I haven't prepped you for this question. I mean, I've been going all over the show anyway. I haven't really given you, you've been amazing. Um, I'm thinking a lot about this idea of the narrative voice, like as ordering kind of device. Like there's the author, then um, many of the, well, I think all of these are sort of in first person. There's sort of this narrator protagonist kind of person in there. How do you think about that kind of stuff when you're... I mean, one of the best lectures I think I've ever been to was you talking about that split self that happens in non-fiction. Can you talk a little bit about that in regards to this book or anything, any writing? Maybe (laughs) other people's books you can talk about. Um, (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, the the narrating self. I I feel like um, maybe being a poet is quite a good preparation for this because... We all, poets, we're always talking about the speaker in the poem, and sometimes it resembles the author and sometimes it doesn't. And I think there's a really sophisticated understanding of that in, in poetry, whereas people can get a bit kind of more literal with nonfiction. It's like, oh, it's the person. Um, but so I feel like there is that separation I find quite liberating, because it means you can be all sorts of different versions of yourself. So. And I think, I think I know the lecture you were talking about, and I think I um, was probably talking about Jeff Dyer. Yes, um, I think so. And how every single one of his essays, he's got a whole a tire, entirely different persona, and it's to do with what he's writing about. So when he's writing about jazz, it's all very kind of jazzy. Um, <laughs> and when he's writing about the Olympics, he's very silly, and um, he's got a very serious mode when he writes about war. Um, and each of them feels like it's, it's all him, but it feels like that it's actually a real pleasure. Mm. Um, and when I'm talking to students, I also say that. Like, you don't, people talk about finding your voice as though it's just singular. singular. And <laughs> I don't know. I mean, like, I feel like being a parent highlights the fact that we have multiple mm. selves and voices and ways of speaking. Um, and so, I, yeah, I just I feel like there's a kind of joy in thinking, oh, how, how do I sound here? Which is not about making it up, but like what what is the voice that might hold this subject, and which bit of me might I use in this space? And often, what I also think works really well as far as narrative and structure goes is that these different sort of versions of self are interested in different things and notice different things. And I think that often with often that's a joy of for me, of reading nonfiction is this noticing of the world in a different way. Is that is that something you think about, or like, because a lot of the places we return to a couple of times, but uh, in different, you know, you never step in the same stream twice, sort of stuff. Yeah. But yeah, um, yeah, it actually, yeah, it really is. Um, and I think that because I'm allowing myself to notice different kinds of things in in other places, then it releases me. So I am aware that in the Amazon section in particular, I seem like a very anxious mother. Mm, mm. Um, And it was, you know, a little bit anxiety provoking. Um, uh, But um, there I am really, I'm just just a mother and I could be like any mother. I've got these two little girls and we're 
in a in a canoe and I and I'm scared mm. um, and so I kind of let myself completely be in that space um, but I think it's because I let myself like in a so in um, what I think is pretty much the last um, chapter I wrote um, but it's it's about the it's kind of the centerpiece of the book is the one about Sussex mm -hmm. and about Charlotte Smith and Mary Wollstonecraft and Frances Burney and all these women writers I've written a lot about and in that one I I kind of just let myself be the an intellectual woman um, and someone who has read and thought a lot about how travel writing gets written and um, and just kind of, yeah, I kind of let myself be that, that person and that person who, who does know about lots of things. Mm. Whereas in the Amazon one, I, I, don't, I don't think I know very much there because I was out of, out of place and the kind of dominant emotion and feeling was one of being somewhat filled with wonder but also filled with anxiety. Mm, yeah, that um, Sussex chapter is one of my favorites I know you're not supposed to have favorites like it works beautifully it's as a favorite. whole but I just and what it made me think while I was reading it last night was the fact that and I don't want to be I, I know this is going to sound depressing and we don't know what's going to happen next but this captures a type of traveling that is possibly on the way to extinction and I it, it must be interesting revisiting the book as you're sort of talking about it and that sort of thing to think about that. Do you have any thoughts on Because I was thinking that the Wollstonecraft, like that feels like a historical point in time. Do you know what I mean? Like it feels like looking at something that is gone. And I just, I don't know. Yeah, do you have yeah. any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, yeah, I, I do. I, mean, I think one of the interesting things about having studied early 19th century European travel is that you see it, you can see so much that it's a bracket, that mm. kind of, like family travel. I wrote a master's on family travel, it's called domesticity abroad, but, but this idea that families could get up and kind of travel around, not, not, as a, not as a kind of refugee status, but just kind of as travel and tourism, is actually not, it's a pretty new, it's quite a small period of time. So, so it seems more possible to imagine that was just a bracket. Um, and obviously there's COVID, but actually, um, even in some of the final chapters of the book, like I, I'm, you know, I'm already thinking climate change, and I know we keep talking about how it's all going to come roaring back, but it probably shouldn't. Mm, mm, um, mm. And I feel like I was already feeling this great sense of loss um, of like friends, you know, having spent a long time living in America, and that sense that we're not, I'm not going to be visiting them very much, and I, I shouldn't, and. Um, I don't know when I'll see my little brother again, and that means something really different now, and it actually means something quite heart-wrenching mm. at this point. Mm. Um, he would love to come home, and he can't. Yeah. So that's, that is a new thing in our lifetime of experience, I think, or at least mine, that, that it's just not possible. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't... Who knows what will happen next, but... Um, uh, I do get, I find it really strange when people talk as though it's only COVID that's stopping us travelling. Yeah, yeah. Um, speaking about travelling, the book is published in Australia um, and I'm not sure, my memory is not great. I think both happened at the same time, like that it was going to be published in New Zealand and Australia quite close together, right? Eh? And I'm wondering... Um, this is really a question about audience and sort of the stories that we tell and the stories that we have. 
and I'm going to say something about Australian literature, which I hope is all right. I feel like Australia, there's something about nonfiction in Australia that I think, I think it must be amazing to be in that family because, you know, it's an interesting kind of place. What did... What does it feel like to have the book in Australia, first of all? And I don't know if you can talk about it, but were there major changes that needed to happen for it to fit in that tradition, or did it fit quite seamlessly into that tradition, do you think? So it's not quite out in Australia yet. Oh, exciting. Um, July. Yay. Um, just get it Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, re- I'm really excited to see how it will be received there. Um, and it made, it made so much sense Mm-hmm. To me, even though it's really hard to get actually get New Zealand literature published in Australia. So it's got a long sequence in Perth mm-hmm. about my brother and my um, sister-in-law, who's from Russia. Um, and that's kind of an amazing, for me, quite an amazing portion of the book. So I think that helped, a bit of Australian content. Um, but, but it's really, it's in conversation with a lot of Australian writers like Sophie Cunningham and James Bradley mm-hmm. and Rebecca Giggs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think possibly my main non-fiction inspirations for the, for, for the book were from Australia. So actually it, it has the shape of quite an Australian book of non-fiction. Um, I think I was reading Sophie Cunningham's um, City of Trees um, book when I was when I was thinking about the final shape, and I think it had had quite an influence. Um, so yeah, I'm actually I'm just really excited to be part of that conversation, mm. and just in general, I'm quite excited by this Trans Tasman thing that seems to be happening. And we've got well, your book just come out in Australia, and then having Laura Jean McKay here mm. while she's published a book that's doing so well in Australia, um, and there seemed there's quite a few examples like that and we have so much to talk about um so i haven't the book itself is the same Mm. um i'm doing a few um tiny proofing edits but almost nothing um they haven't done the australian chapter yet though so they may have some (laughs) some suggestions and definitely by the time i was doing a final edit i knew there was going to be australian edition and that i think made me uh just be quite careful and aware as i wrote about australia Mm. yeah um I guess I I just want to, I've got one final question, which is kind of one of the reasons I think that I enjoy reading your writing so much is that there is this constant engagement with other writing, with reading, you know, um, with your job and reading emerging work as well as reading um, work that is inspirational and, you know, um, interesting and exciting. And I understand that you're writing an article about reading at the moment and I wonder, I don't know, like... I, there, I, I spoke to another person yesterday who said, oh, I can't read while I'm writing. And I wonder, is that your... I guess you can't really afford the luxury of not reading because it's so much of your work. But do those things talk to each other, do you think? Or, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah. Um, and I actually probably should say that I teach at Massey University. So that's the context where we're, we're talking oh, about yeah. all we're this. Oh, yeah, we're talking like this. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I run yeah, writing workshops at Massey in Wellington, um, including a new one on eco-fictions and non-fictions. <gasps> so so um, absolutely for me, yeah, the reading feeds the writing. Um, 
and do I stop for a point? I think there was a certain moment in this book where I realised that I wasn't interested in anything else anymore. The only book I wanted to read was the one I was writing. Great. Um, and I think that was probably like a two or three month period um, and I just was living inside it. Um, but in general, I, yeah, in general I just feel like it's a very fertile relationship mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I... I love reading. Sometimes I think I do love reading more than I love writing. Um, it's easier. Uh, um, uh, yeah, and um, and then yeah, being in the classroom, I'm, I think I'm constantly thinking, oh, what can I, what can my students learn from this? But also I'm constantly thinking, yeah, what can I, what can I learn mm. from this? How mm. are they doing? How are they making that mechanism work? Or how are they making that description work? And oh, that seems weird. What are they doing? Mm, yeah, yeah. I just, I really, really, really love it. Would it be absolutely cheeky of me? You can just say no comment to ask what what is on the, what sort of things are you thinking about as far as the ecofiction and nonfiction goes? Like, are there are there books oh. that you're thinking, oh, that has to be on it? Or I mean, the course may even be designed already. I don't it's know. well, it's partially designed actually. Mm. Um, the thing that I'm really excited about, and I'm, I'm co-designing it with Dean McKay, oh, amazing, um, is that we've got it structured around, um, around I guess you'd call them things, I don't know. So it, we wondered about doing it around genre, mm -hmm. um, and it was non-fiction and blah, blah, blah. But now it's structured around, so there's writing about trees oh, in one week, yes. so there's a little bit of Richard Ford, a little bit of Sophie Cunningham, amazing um, Australian um, indigenous writer Ellen Van Neven writing about this crazy queer love affair with a tree um, and then there's a section on water um, which had, has Nina Powell's and other oh, fantastic right. writers and um, so that that's kind of how we've structured it and I, I taught a sort of ghost version of this last year using the new structure and yeah it was fantastic it was fantastic to go in that way I felt like we stop talking about writing and we start talk, talk about, talking about writing about the world. Because mm -hmm. I just think, you know, like these ideas of genre are breaking down so nicely and I was just, I don't know, when we were sitting here I was kind of thinking again how amazing it is that when you look back on your books how you have moved and how each one feels like it's informed it, you know, and, and it really it really is a body of work that is just, yeah, so wonderful. Thank you for keeping writing and everything like that. I think that brings us to the end. Thank you so much. It's Thank such you. a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks heaps. Okay, so here's an idea that you could take as an exercise if you felt quite motivated. Um, this is an exercise that doesn't just take sort of a couple of minutes or 15 minutes. It's an exercise that I thought could continue over a month. So I really enjoyed Ingrid talking about the water logs and um, how like certain strategies for crafting true events. And I wondered if it would be interesting to keep a log, first of all, for a week. So set aside five minutes um, to free write about the day that you've had and I was thinking you might even like to keep a link from the front page of a news site for each day um, and then I thought at the end of the week you could see if there are any events that are sort of rumbling to the surface and are sort of vying for a position that maybe they could form some kind of narrative and 
um, yeah, I wondered if you could ask yourself of that first week, you know, wh- what would you focus on more or what would you pay more attention to in the next week's logs and what would you pay less attention to in the next week's logs? So um, I thought that this could be an interesting exercise to do over a month and I thought there are probably two ways of doing it. The first is that each week you sort of stay, take stock and think about what um, might be interesting to do, you know, that thing I was talking about, what you'd be interested to pay more attention to and what you'd be interested to pay less attention to. And then at the end of the month, kind of look back and see how um, the events sort of um, bore out over that month. So maybe something that looked like it might not be of much interest turned into a lot of interest um, or maybe something that was of, you know, like was of a lot of interest has even become bigger and bigger. Um, so that's one way of doing it is sort of this iterative taking inventory at the end of each week and then looking back and seeing what happened. The other option is just simply to write over the month and then look back at what you've got and make a decision around how you would craft it. I think Ingrid talks um, about sort of taking certain events out and um you know, I think there's even the possibility to go back and sort of do a little bit more research on events that seem, you know, relevant to the narrative of the story that you're telling. So, yeah, I know that's 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 a that's a big challenge, but it might be fun. Five minutes a day, free write about your day, carry it on for a month, either check in with it every week and readjust it, or um, have a look at it um, in the future and see what happened with it. Um, one other option, if you're feeling very keen, um, could be to do both. Like um, one month, do the checking in every week, and the next month, um, write throughout the month and then craft at the end. So yeah, I reckon you'll get something interesting out of it. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you.